The Medical Alley podcast is brought to you by MentorMate. Custom software needs vary significantly, whether you're powering a medical device, overhauling your backend architecture, or reimagining your patient experience, MentorMate can help. Harnessing the technical excellence of Bulgaria, MentorMate provides end-to-end software services in all sectors of healthcare. With deep expertise in design, development, cloud, and software support, MentorMate helps healthcare clients administer world-class care through technology. Learn more at MentorMate.com. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon to everyone out there in Medical Alley. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Medical Alley podcast. We've got a great conversation ahead with Dave Rosa from Neuro One, and I'm really excited to have this conversation because it's a really kind of an amazing technology. It's a great business, but it's also a person in Dave who's been involved in the industry with a number of companies for a long time and has just a great perspective on medical technology on healthcare. So, Dave, I want to say welcome to the podcast and. Maybe you could start with uh, introducing yourself and introducing Neuro One. Sure. Well, first of all, Frank, thanks for having me uh, as a guest today. Always exciting to catch up with you and have a conversation with you. As you said, my name is Dave Rosa. I'm the CEO of Neuro One Medical Technologies Corp. Been with the company since uh, late 2016. And Neuro One, uh, really what, what our objective is, is to... Uh, develop and commercialize thin film, high definition electrodes that really could be used for a variety of different neurological conditions. Most people have heard of epilepsy, Parkinson's disease, you know, chronic back pain due to to failed back surgeries, which I actually fit into that category. Uh, But these electrodes are really intended to perform multiple functions, both diagnostic uh, and therapeutic, which is one of the things that separates us from uh, some of the other technologies out there. That is really unique. That yeah, you can you can do the diagnostic side and and deliver therapy. I mean, is that one of the things that attracted you to this opportunity? Sure. Um, it's it was kind of an interesting way I got involved with the company. Um, I had had a a, a medical uh, issue uh, that came up uh, and. I wasn't able to work for just about six months. Uh, I was on blood thinners and long story short, I was approached by uh, the co-founders of the company uh, really uh, just for some help, introductions to investors because they were looking to raise money and I really wasn't doing anything. So um, I decided I would you know, help. So for about nine months, I looked at the technology Uh, worked with one of the co-founders, actually spoke to some of the physicians, the Mayo Clinic, obviously one of our um, local partners here. I spent time there with the inventor at the University of Wisconsin. And really what I came away with from all of this was that this technology, uh, not only was it, uh, you know, a later, more advanced version of uh, what was already being provided, but the ability to offer both the diagnostic and therapeutic uh, function within one device. Uh, When I looked at that, I thought that was really unique. And in the end, this is all about improving patient care, making it safer, less invasive. And here we had the, what I felt the opportunity or the potential to eliminate um, a second hospitalization, a second surgical procedure, in addition to really providing a more uh, or a higher tech more up-to-date version uh, of products that were already being used. 
Oh, I, I love that when it's you can improve on something that exists, but in doing so, you make a real meaningful impact for the patients. Like avoiding a second surgery, I have to imagine any patient that's confronted with that, that that'd be the direction they'd want to go. Yeah, we actually had a, um, uh, a patient that had gone through this procedure at the University of Minnesota. Um, and uh, I had posted uh, about putting together an advisory board for this one particular technology, you know, that combined both diagnostic and therapeutic functions. And, and uh, I was surprised uh, when, when I saw the post and his comment was, he said, I just went through this. Uh, I wish you the best because this will have a very impactful, uh, really, uh, uh, when I say impactful, it, it'll have uh, a great impact to uh, patient acceptance because it is, uh, it's, it's uh, two procedures that are done over months, uh, over a period of typically two to three months. You know, we're, we're talking about, you know, drilling holes into people's brains, um, you know, which is, which is pretty intimidating for a lot of people. So the ability to to get everything done at one time uh, offers really uh, uh, a great advantage to how things are done today. Well, indeed. And, and maybe you can talk a bit about that. So epilepsy is one of the areas the product addresses. And I'm just wondering, could you maybe use that as an example to tell our listeners who maybe don't know as much about the space, what's kind of the, the big issue or big issues that are out there today? And then how does NeuroOne's technology address them? Yeah, it's uh, it's a good question. So while the technology is really intended for uh, a number of different indications in the neurospace, epilepsy is is really where we started. And um, what's really uh, come to my attention in, in terms of the challenges, uh, one was pretty obvious, the other wasn't. But the first one um, reminds me of, of my days in the cardiovascular space where cardiologists or interventionalists would say, gosh, um, you know, I, I'm really relying on the cardiologist, just general cardiologist to refer patients to me. And, you know, that's not happening. And that's the reason why I can't do more procedures. You know, we, we've heard the same thing, actually, from neurosurgeons that, you know, in, in many cases, they're just not uh, getting referrals from the neurologists. Um, so it's one of the reasons why more of these procedures aren't done. When you look at just the raw numbers, uh, there's over 3 million patients that have uh, uh, epilepsy in, in the United States, and a third of them are refractory uh, to medications. So typically, they will put a patient through three different types of medications. Each medication they're on for a month uh, and, you know, they would progress the second and third if, if uh, you know, the first was not effective. So you're, you're talking about over a million patients that, you know, that are candidates for the surgical procedure. And when you look at the raw numbers, there's probably, you know, it's under 10,000 patients who opt for the surgery. Uh, so it's if, if, if you speak to any neurologist or, or neurosurgeon, you would hear them say it's probably one of the most underutilized uh, therapies that has proven to be very effective. Um, so, so one one is referrals, but but second is um, you can imagine uh, the gold standard until about five years ago was for these procedures to remove uh, the top part of a patient's skull, and you know there you can imagine there's very little enthusiasm uh, for a right. patient uh, to come in and 
find out the top part of their skull is going to be off, their brain's going to be exposed. And most of these patients are awake uh, for the procedure because the doctor does have to perform some tests while they're awake to make sure that if they do go in and remove uh, certain brain tissue, that it's not going to impact, you know, a patient's motor function or speech or vision, uh, because obviously different parts of the brain right. different functions. So the, the, uh, the invasiveness has definitely uh, been a barrier for patients to move forward. Um, and that really spawned uh, uh, about five years ago, the emergence of um, a procedure where instead of removing the top part of the skull, they would drill tiny holes into the brain tissue. Now, you know, I would say, okay, if, if you're not removing the top part of the skull, but you're going to drill about 15 holes deep within my brain, I'm not sure that I'm really excited about that uh, either. But it has helped uh, in terms of uh, patients being more willing to go through the procedure. And again, you know, the data shows that it's still resection, removing brain tissue is still the most effective way uh, if, if you're refractory uh, to medication. Um, but all of these, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, require a diagnostic and then a therapeutic procedure. And, you know, when you asked, well, how are we, uh, you know, trying to address some of this from a technology standpoint, you know, we're trying to make uh, electrodes that are thinner, more flexible, uh, so that instead of having to make large cuts, whether it's in the skull or in the spine, that you can place these devices through smaller holes or even through needles uh, to make it less invasive. So that's one piece. The second piece is to combine the diagnostic and therapeutic procedure into one device so that, again, the patient doesn't have to go back uh, for uh, a second procedure. And, and really, the, the last thing I'll mention is um, you also have to consider that half the population uh, is uh, patients that are uh, adolescents to, you know, and, and as young as uh, neonates. And you can imagine how many parents are, are really, right. uh, really struggle with, oh, um, you know, uh, you know, the doctor telling you that your, your newborn, you know, needs to have an invasive procedure to correct you know, an irregularity uh, in, in, in the brain. It's just, it's very daunting. And unfortunately, you'll hear many neurologists and neurosurgeons say that the longer you delay surgery uh, for epilepsy, uh, the less likely you are to uh, cure the condition. And, you know, it's, it's been proven time and time again that some of these uh, parents wait too long. The, the uh, child uh, either passes away or is left with uh, with, with some sort of, you know, physical, uh, defect, uh, over time, uh, due to the fact that, you know, the, the epilepsy wasn't addressed, uh, early enough. So, you know, my feeling is, uh, the less invasive we can make this and the more we can get this all done in one procedure, the more likely, uh, right. both parents and, and older patients will be willing, uh, to adopt it. That's awesome. Yeah, the the psychological barriers to care, I think, are things we don't often talk about as in as an industry. And that that right there, if I were a parent, especially with a newborn, confronted with that condition, confronted with that kind of procedure, it would it would give me pause. So having yeah a, a less invasive alternative, fewer surgeries, um, I, I could see how that would 
in a very positive way, speed up the decision making and then hopefully deliver better outcomes as a result. That that's that's pretty cool. Well, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because I, I rarely bring this up, but it was probably about five years ago. Uh, I was attending as many of these conferences uh, on epilepsy and Parkinson's as I could. And one of them, I remember one of the titles kind of struck me as being odd, but it said uh, the psychological impact of um, epilepsy surgery. And I thought, well, you know, I, it never occurred to me that that I would be sitting in a conference, you know, watching a presentation on this. But during the presentation, uh, what the neurosurgeon showed were photos of, you know, children different uh, ages that had had to have the top part of their skull removed. And sometimes you have to do it, especially if there's a tumor right. that needs to be removed and it's, you know, it's causing the epilepsy. But the whole presentation really centered around what happens over time when these patients have, um, you know, these very invasive procedures. And um, it was actually pretty sad to see that it had a uh, the very invasive ones, a tremendous psychological impact because when the bone heals after it's been placed back over the brain, you know, you would see, you know, like uh, 16 year old girls with ridges and space right. between the bone. And you can imagine, you know, uh, an adolescent growing up, you're in school, you know, uh, other classmates make comments, friends, it's, um, right. you know, it, there really is a psychological impact to it. And, I, I hadn't even thought of it uh, until I sat down and watched that presentation. It was uh, it was really gut wrenching. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's probably a good lesson for all of us around this world to to be thinking about. Right, it, it's much broader of an impact on the patient's life than the things we may see in the doctor's office or in the operating room, and that's an opportunity. Uh, to make better innovations and improve care alongside making better technologies. I mean, that, that's fantastic. Yeah, no, no question about it. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious, so there's a bit more to NeuroOne, as I understand it, though, right? So you're, it's not just a device company. I saw on your website you have an AI advisory board, and I'd just be curious, the data part of what you guys are doing, you know, What's the AI aspects of your work? Yeah, so um, good question. Really what we're doing, and, and this is, by the way, a very complicated um, space, you know, in terms of trying to use artificial intelligence to treat patients that have these types of conditions. And, and really where NeuroOne comes into play is, is the electrode side of things. So what, what we're really doing, our part, uh, in this whole equation is really to develop the the tools or the electrodes uh, that have the capability to generate uh, the amount of data that would be needed to, to really enable artificial intelligence. But there, you know, we we are not the part of the equation that uh, and then there's you know the hardware, the software, and the disposable. We're we're really the, the disposable without our device, without the ability to generate thousands and thousands of contact points in the brain makes it very challenging to, to really see artificial intelligence become uh, a viable piece of treating these, these conditions. But, um, you know, the, the, the whole concept behind the advisory board was to actually 
partner with other companies that are working uh, on the hardware and software aspect. And it seems quite honestly that those technologies are further off uh, or further out, I should say, in development. None of this is, you know, is obviously simple to do. But, uh, you know, I think the, the Neural One technology, while, you know, we have to make some changes to the device, the ability to make these electrodes that can generate all this data certainly uh, exists today. Uh, yeah. So we're, we're kind of at the mercy of some of these other companies, you know, that are working on uh, being able to transmit, you know, thousands and thousands of data points uh, back and forth to the brain, you know, to a computer, you know, to, to really fully recognize the benefits of using artificial intelligence. And, you know, it's, it's not a, it's, it's not a, a trivial uh, piece to, to develop that. So we're, but we're just one leg of the stool and, and uh, you know, waiting for uh, some of the other pieces to yeah. develop further before, um, you know, we we're really able to deliver what we hope to. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And I, I always feel like that position, like the, the tools to generate, to be able to generate data, it's an underappreciated aspect of artificial intelligence and machine learning. You know, computer scientists always say, you know, garbage in, garbage out. You need to yes. be able to get in that high quality and high volume of data. In the biotech world, it makes me think of like companies like Biotechni that enable all the other companies to do their drug research. AI and ML companies need that enabling technologies to be able to do their work. So it's great to hear you guys are contributing to that broader ecosystem and helping to make some of that work possible. That's the idea. Yeah. Well, I, I want to turn to a slightly different part of it, kind of the, the business side of what you guys have been up to. You'd announced a partnership with Zimmer, I believe about a year-ish ago, maybe a year and a half ago now. And well, we don't want to talk about the details of the Zimmer agreement itself, I'm just wondering if you could maybe share with the listeners some perspective or some understanding of for other companies that are working with large established organizations, developing partnerships, how do you go about thinking how you're going to make those partnerships and how you're going to manage them so that they're successful, right? Small company working with a large company. How do you go about making that work well? Yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm kind of smiling because uh, there's no question, um, you know, it's, it's not hard to identify, I think, the companies that, that make sense to look to partner with. I mean, in our case, a lot of people said to me, gosh, I can't see how Zimmer Biomed is a fit. They're, you know, everybody knows them as an orthopedics company. But what few people knew was that um, they had a robotic system that had a variety of applications. And um, one of them was a neurosurgery procedures, such as the one that our electrodes would be used in. And um, the reason why I, I really targeted them was um, they're a smaller division of uh, Zimmer Biomet that obviously has pretty big aspirations for growth. And you know, I think um, many of these companies today are looking uh, for ways to, uh, to grow revenue um, that are outside the organization. And, you know, obviously partnering with uh, a company like ourselves is, is one of the ways. But, you know, how do you manage them? You know, we, 
uh, I'll say you, you try to manage the process. And what we did up front was since both of us were contributing technology, they were contributing accessories uh, that are required uh, to be used with their robot and our device. And, and we were obviously focused on the electrode. We actually formed um, a team. And uh, so we had uh, individuals on our side along with uh, team members from their side. And every week uh, we went through the uh, progress, the project, the deliverables, uh, what some of the barriers were or risks were. So I, I think like anything, having uh, more communication as to what's going on and having a partner that really, um, that your device really matters in their business in terms of growth is, uh-huh. is really important. You've got to be important to them because if you're not, you're, you're, uh, you're probably not going to get the attention. When I worked in big companies, it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, the, the mindset is that small companies don't have the resources, but but the biggest argument uh, that we used to make in big companies is, gosh, we can't do all this. We don't have the resources. But compared to a, a smaller company like NeuroOne, you know, we would love to, you know, to have in the bank just the interest that, you know, they generate all the money that they have to spend. Um, we would be thrilled for that. So I, I really have enjoyed working with them. I, you know, you're always concerned going into these things about how they're going to play out. But, you know, having... Um, you know, a team, uh, there, we've made many visits to their site. They've come out here. Um, I think we've just developed really solid relationships, um, you know, with the group and, right. uh, you know, it, it, it helps, you know, when, uh, when people trust each other and, you know, we're really working towards a common goal. This, this wasn't just, Oh, we'll sign a deal with neuro one. They'll give us a device and we'll sell it. They had a development uh, piece of this. We had a development piece, and and you know we've really worked together well. Indeed, you know even even though you know uh, you're you're always concerned about how serious they are and how really interested they are, you know, in in promoting your technology. But for us, you know, it was, it was a no brainer because they their robot with with their robotic procedures. Uh, in the neurospace, someone's electrode is always used with their device. And uh, if they're, if they're in the procedure, they're not getting, uh, they're not realizing any revenue. Uh, once the robot is sold, it's sold. Um, but in this case now, you know, they had the razor, the old razor, razor blade analogy. They had the razor, we have the razor blade. So, um, so it's not like they have to go out and build a new sales force, uh, you know, they they just need the uh, the razor blade, and and that's what we uh, have to offer. So well said of finding the business where what you do can be important to them, that it is accretive to their growth, and building that relationship. I think that's a great place to wrap up the conversation on that that really informative side of things. And so, Dave, I just want to say thank you for the great work you're doing. It truly matters that companies in Medical Alley are making people's lives better around the world. And thank you for taking some time out of your busy day to join us for this discussion. Well, uh, Frank, thank you and uh, all of Medical Alley. I mean, you guys have been a great asset. I've been in Minnesota, I think, uh, 20 plus years now. And, you know, from the day I started in the medical device industry, you may have had a different name, but um, you guys have always been there to lend a helping hand. Uh, Companies like ourselves that, you know, don't have all the resources, 
and relationships sometimes that we need to be successful. So thank you as well. Wonderful. We appreciate it. And folks, with that, that's another episode of the Medical Alley podcast. If you're not a subscriber already, make sure to check out medicalalleypodcast.org, or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Have a great day, and we'll see you on the next episode.